My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And let me start off by just reflecting on the last few days, because they've been a really big last few days for us and our church family. I mean, I just think, wow, we have, we have a lot to celebrate when I think of, of really on Thursday, when, when things really started to pick it up and getting crazy, we, we signed and officially on the, the Elkhorn property that we purchased a few, a few weeks ago. The, the due diligence process is done, and so that is officially official. It's closed. We are going to Elkhorn Brookside, so it is great to just know. Yeah, so go ahead and clap. That's good news. It, it is great to know that not only will we, be, will we be continuing to do everything we do here, but we're going to be multiplying what God is doing already in Elkhorn is being a part of taking the gospel into another part of the city. So, so that's good news, a ton of fun. And then, uh, so that was Thursday. Friday night into Saturday, we had 180 middle school students, so 6th through 8th graders here for our annual lock-in. It was a ton of fun. And, and when you put that many uh, middle school students in one place with zero sleep, a whole lot of sugar, and inflatables, I mean, how can that not be a great thing to do? I, my two oldest boys were here for that and, and had a great time. So, so I know we are so grateful for Jonathan, our new middle school director, everything he's doing just to help us continue leaning into our value of reaching the next generation, something we want to be about as a church. And then, and then not only Johnny, but it took a whole lot of volunteers, adult volunteers, who are willing to sacrifice a night of sleep to, to help love students and, and care for students and help, um, help that go smoothly. So if you see one of our tribe volunteers, uh, give them a hug <laughs> or, or something like that for everything they did to help, help that lock-in go as smoothly as it did. And then today, we have our 10-minute party, which is awesome. So if you're new to Brookside, maybe this is your first week, you've just been here for a few weeks, we have designed something for you where just in, in a span of a few minutes, you can come and get to know some of the big things we want to be about as a church, and then also just shake a few hands and get to know a few pastors that will be there, because we, we want to meet you personally and say hi and show just genuine, genuine thanks for you being here for us. So that 10-minute party is right after this service. It's right over here to my left, your right. Basically, if you head over to those windows on the side of our auditorium, you'll, you'll run right into it. And so, so that's uh, in just a little bit. But, but first, what I've been looking forward to all week is getting into this James series that we kick off today. Uh, James is such a great book of the Bible that has so much for us that, that is like applicable immediately, that, that benefits our life immediately as we start studying and looking into what James offers us. And so what I do is I, I, I say, uh, I'll encourage you to start turning to James right now in your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, uh, know that any Sunday we have free Bibles that we love to gift to people who don't have a Bible of their own. So, so start turning to James, pull it up on your Bible app, pull out your Bible, whatever it takes. But, uh, but we're going to dig into it here in just a second. James, just so you know, is all the way at the end of the New Testament. So the simplest way to find it is to go to the end, to the book of Revelation, and then just start backing up from there. You'll back up through a handful of books or so, and then you'll get to James. But since we're spending the next chunk of weeks talking about James and walking slowly through James, what I want to do on the very front end this morning is start off with a little bit of introduction to the book as a whole, just so, we, just so we get to know James a little bit, and so we get a feel for the book. And so James is actually probably the earliest book of the New Testament that was written, which is great. It's either the earliest or among the earliest. 
And then James is, is in this category of literature called wisdom literature. And all that means, that's just the fancy language for saying that James is intensely practical. And then, and then James covers a whole lot of diverse topics that intersect directly with our lives, with the things that we face week in and week out. But know that since James covers such a diverse number of topics, he jumps around a little bit. So, so get ready for that. And then it's also helpful to know who wrote the book and a little bit about him. So in the very first, uh, in the very first verse of James, the author introduces himself, and it's no guesswork as to who it is, right? James 1.1, 1, 1, James comes right out and introduces himself as the author. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And so the big insight that you don't want to miss from James, who, he, who this is, is that this guy that's writing this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so this guy grew up with Jesus. I mean, just wrap your mind around that for a second. I mean, I was a good brother, but I wasn't Jesus. So, uh, you know, I mean, so, so this guy grew up with Jesus. And here's why that's a big deal. We, we know from the gospel accounts that during his 33 years of ministry on earth, Jesus' brothers never believed in him, right? They never believed that he was the Son of God or the Messiah. And when we think about how brothers grow up together, we, we maybe kind of get that, right? I mean, imagine how you'd respond to a perfect brother who a lot of people are saying is God. You can see how that's like a few counseling sessions, <laughs> sessions right in there, you know? But, 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 then, but then something happened after Jesus' death and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that, that Jesus appears to James after his resurrection, and, and that appearance flipped a switch in James's heart, which makes sense, right? Because when you see somebody who, who, who died, who you saw die, when that person is here interacting with you again, that will do something in you, make you think about everything else they said and, and did. And so James now knows that Jesus isn't just his brother. James knows that Jesus is his Savior and his Lord. James places his faith in Jesus, begins following him, and then James actually begin, becomes one, one of the key leaders in one of the key cities, Jerusalem, of the first century church. And so the person of James is fascinating because in James we have this, this case study of someone who goes from a skeptic all the way over here to a believer as an adult. And so because of that, James knows the difference that following Jesus makes to his actions, to his motivations, to his mindset. Because, because he, he knows who he was before Jesus, and then he's seen the pivot that's happened in his mind, his heart, and his actions since following Jesus. James has believed the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus did on the cross. And so now James knows that faith in Jesus, it makes a difference. Faith in Jesus works itself out in very practical, evident ways in the lives of those who follow him. And this practical nature of the book of James is actually one of the ways James stands out. Get this, James has a total of 108 total verses, right, that just make up the book of James, 108 verses. In those 108 verses, there are 59 different commands, so again and again, James is just looking us in the eyes, and he's calling us to action. When you read through James, buckle up, right? Because there's a lot of practical, boots-on-the-ground difference that Jesus makes. 
And then lots of other letters in the New Testament, they spend a bunch of space developing arguments and developing to- or dealing with topics that, that maybe feel to us abstract sometimes. But this isn't so much the case in James. As we'll see in a second, James gets right to the point. He's been changed by Jesus and how he wants to jump right into telling us how the gospel not only changed him, but how the gospel changes you, how it changes us as his followers. So let's start to zero in on James 1, on this section we're going to be talking about today. Because James takes us into the deep end of the pool right away. So he introduces himself in verse 1. Verse 2, we're in the deep end. He brings up a couple of things that are tough to talk about and that honestly a lot of us don't like to talk about. But he brings up a couple of things that we need to talk about because the, the two topics James brings up in, verse, in chapter 1 are things that are real for all of us. James comes out of the gate talking about trial and temptation. You see, James knows what we all know. Every one of us here, James knows that life is tough. I mean, life is tough maybe because of of trials outside of us that are putting pressure on us and exerting influence over us. Or maybe life is tough because of temptations inside of you, struggles you have, struggles that are brewing beneath the surface. James knows that. He knows life is tough. Circumstances come that throw us a curveball. Things happen that take the air out of your lungs. You get the news that that knocks you to the ground and, and, and keeps you there for a while. So James knows life is tough. This happens to all of us. This this truth that life is tough, it's not an if-it-happens sort of issue. This truth that life is tough is a when-it-happens sort of reality. I mean, many of you right now feel like you're in the middle of, of some sort of trial or temptation of your own. So you get what James knows, that life is tough. No one need, No one here needs to be convinced of that. But instead, what we need to talk about, what we want to talk about is, is, so how do we respond to that? How do you respond? What do you do when life gets tough? How do you respond when you realize that, that even when you're following Jesus, and, and even when you're trying to do everything right, even then, how do you respond when life gets tough? How do you respond when you've been following Jesus for a long time and the trials keep coming, the temptations keep coming? What do you, what do, you do when life gets tough? So what James does in the first 18 verses of James chapter 1 is that he answers these questions by giving us perspective. And perspective is so important during difficult times because when trials and temptations come, these things can be so big and shake our foundations so much that they're all we see, right? They take up our whole field of vision. We, we can't see around them, and we can't see through them. And so out of care for us, James helps us respond rightly to trials and temptations, but by just, by just helping us step back, zoom out just a few clicks, and he gives us perspective that is so beneficial, when, when we face the trials and temptations that we know we're going to face. So by the time we're done today, probably nothing will change with the circumstances in your life, right? I mean, 70 minutes 
worth of a service isn't going to do that. 35 minutes of a sermon isn't going to change your circumstances. But, but here's what today we'll do as, as we open up this book, as we open up the Bible, God's word to us. We will see truth that, that doesn't change our circumstances like that, but, but we will see truth that, that changes our perspective, that can help show us how to respond rightly to the trials and the temptations when they come. And, and just as importantly, we'll see who God is in the midst of those trials and temptations. And so let's, um, let's go back to James 1. I'm going to pick it back up in verse 2. I'm going to read all the way through verse 18. So James 1, 2, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So, so James comes out swinging, right? He comes out big. Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. And then he tells us why. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. This picture of, of wholeness that we're drawn to, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded. The, the Greek word there is actually double-souled, like S-O-U-L. The, the, there's this fundamental conflict in their deepest parts. That person is double-minded, double-souled, and unstable in all that they do. Believers, verse 9, in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And then in verse 12, James shows us he's still talking about trials, right? Because that's what he, bring, he comes back to, he brings up again. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then in verse 13 is where James starts to talk about temptation. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. And so, so what do you do when life gets tough? What do you do when trials and temptations keep just barraging your life? James gives us three points. He gives us three perspectives Shapers. I'm going to mention these now, then we'll go back and walk through each of them more slowly. So point number one, James tells us that trials can shape you in godliness like nothing else can. Next perspective shaper, James tells us, is that temptations can take you to a place that you never really want to go. And then third point, in both trials and temptations, we need to keep our focus on who God is and what he offers. 
So, so let's start at the top and start walking through these more slowly. Trials can shape us in godliness like nothing else can. James's opening words in verse 2, they grab our attention. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, right? I mean, so, so James starts out big with this bold command, because that's what it is. This is an imperative. It's a command. James isn't suggesting this. He's not saying, well, well Tim, if you feel like it, James commands us, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now, now before we come to any wrong conclusions about what this can mean, let me make sure we're clear that, that James doesn't mean that, that suffering is some sort of valuable end in itself. James isn't telling anyone here just to, just to fake it till you make it. Nothing like that. Because we need to see how James finishes his thought, which he does in verses 3 and 4. He says, he says, consider it joy when you face trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Again, this picture of wholeness not lacking in anything. And so what James is saying is that as difficult as trials are, because trials are difficult, as difficult as trials are, that they can shape us in godliness like nothing else can. Trials can shape your character. So trials can, can advance your maturity. So trials will bring us back to God in ways like nothing else does. And before I say anything else, hear me say very clearly, with, with all the care I, I can muster as a, as a pastor, nothing in this passage is making light of, of, of the very real suffering you might be in the middle of right now. Nothing in this passage minimizes how, how hard trials really are. I was sitting with someone over lunch earlier this week who who this, this gentleman and his family are, are going through intense, deep, rip your heart out of your chest and stomp on, on the ground sort of suffering. A, a lot of you here in this room might be going through some version, some, so, some, something similar with your own suffering and trials. This passage isn't telling anyone here to just smile your way through it or just pretend like nothing happened. Well, we have to remember that, that Jesus in John 11, he goes to this, this tomb of a friend who had recently died, this tomb of Lazarus. So he goes to Lazarus's tomb and he interacts with the people who are weeping there over the, over the loss of, of a brother and a friend. And Jesus doesn't say, consider it joy. When Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, with his sisters Mary and Martha, with, with the group of people that had come down to, to, to mourn. Jesus weeps with them. Jesus feels with them. And so, so if you're going through trial and suffering right now, Jesus feels with you. But we still need to ask the question, what does James 1 mean then? Well, what does James 1 mean when it tells us to consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds? What, what can help you persevere through the unthinkable when it happens? Here's how. Here, here's how we persevere. Here's how we find joy in difficulty. It means we, we trust that this trial is doing something 
in us, something we would have never chosen for ourselves, but this trial is doing something in us to, to shape our character. Maybe, maybe it exposes a weakness of our own. Maybe it forces dependence on others in a healthy way. Every trial brings us back to God in desperation. Because when things are going great, it's really easy for, to get, to, for us to forget God, how absolutely dependent we are on Him and how good He is. Trials invite us back to God. A few years ago, David Brooks wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times called What Suffering Does. And he says, recovering from suffering isn't like recovering from a disease. Many people don't come out healed. They come out different. Or at another spot in the same article, he says, when people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It's often the ordeals or, or the trials that people, that people find most significant. People shoot for happiness, which is good. We want happiness. It's okay to want happiness. People shoot for happiness, but they feel formed through suffering. You see, trials have a way of shaping us like nothing else can. And this is what James pastorally this is what he keeps in front of us as we follow Jesus. It's not going to always be easy. Trials will come. Many of us are facing a battle, fighting a battle right now, but, but take joy in knowing that your character is being forged through fire. There it can be as we lean into God, as we respond the right way. And so, so the question I want to ask gently for everyone here, just this in the middle of that trial. The question I want to ask is, is how might God be shaping you? How might God be advancing your maturity? How might God be growing your character? How might God be pointing you back to himself? How might God be shaping your godliness in the midst of, of difficult, dark circumstances? Well, external circumstances and the trials they bring, they're not the only thing that make life difficult, that make life tough. Temptation is in that same category too. And so here's the next point or the next perspective shaper that James gives us. He says, temptations can take you to a place you never wanted to go. Talk with anyone who has responded poorly to temptation and they'll get this. And this is all of us, by the way. We, we have all, at one point or another, probably a lot more than we like to admit, we have all of us responded poorly to temptation. And so, so we've seen the hurt on the face of the person we sin against. We've felt the shame of personal defeat or, or the sting of regret when we've given in to that sin again. What looks so good when we're on the front end of temptation can become so destructive if we give in to it. And this is the perspective that James gives us, starting in verse 13. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. 
And so James doesn't paint temptation or the sin that it can lead to. He doesn't paint it in any sort of cute, ah, shucks, it's not that big of a deal sort of light. James shows us how, how serious temptation and then what it can lead to is. The language James uses here in verse 14 when he talks about being dragged away and enticed, that's specific language that, that in the first century was associated with hunting and with fishing. And so, so, so this hunting language, being dragged away, the, the picture that should come to mind is of an animal that, that has been snared or killed and is now just being dragged through the snow. Or, or the, 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 the language of being enticed that's fishing language of a fish being enticed by some lure unaware of the hook that is waiting to grab it. Back in the first century when James is writing this, there, there's not a whole lot of catch and release fishing, recreational fishing. So when, when a fish was enticed, when it ended up on the hook or, or a net, it was game over. So, so the language James is using here when we're caught in sin, it isn't pretty, and it doesn't end well. So by exposing temptation and sin for what it is, by using this sort of language that James does, he disarms temptation and sin for us. A few summers ago, I was out with, with Carrie and our boys at Mahoney. We were doing some camping. We decided to go fishing, and and like even me being camping was kind of a feat in itself, right? Because I'm not a huge outdoors guy. I'm, I'm not a fisher guy either. And, and it was a spur of the moment decision. So this is going to end in disaster. I'll just say that right now. So, so we weren't prepared, right? Uh, among four boys, we had two fishing poles. And then the bait shop was out of worms. So we didn't have any of that. So we just found something that would stick on a hook. And we grabbed it from the cooler. And so, so we did that, hit the lake. And uh, like I said, we, we think it's going to be a disaster. It was a disaster. The, the noise of four boys arguing over two, two fishing poles was probably enough in itself to kind of keep fish well away from our spot on the lake. But then, then the, the bait that we found, I think it was some, some kind of cut up pieces of hot dog or something like that, it, it would fall off the, off the hook every time we threw it into the water. And so when the fish are swimming by, they don't see some wet hot dog, as attractive as that would be, right? The fish don't see the bait. All the fish see there is this sharp piece of metal waiting for them. There, there's nothing desirable about what it really is. As tempting as sin can be, that is just bait. It is just a deceitful lure waiting to snag you, to grab you. It's really this painful hook that will snag you and wreak havoc in your life. And by, by exposing sin for what it is, James takes his power away because nobody should want that. Some of you are here today and you are struggling in the middle of temptation Maybe you've been fighting temptation for a long time and, and you feel like you're starting to lose that battle. Whatever you're drawn to is starting to look really good and really attractive. So, so let James 1 be your wake-up call today. Don't bite the hook. Don't even nibble at it. Run away from temptation, not towards it. 
see sin for what it really is, and then take whatever practical steps you need to take to move the other direction, to respond to temptation the right way, not the wrong way. So that means maybe you need to reconsider the media you're putting in your head. Is it helpful or hurtful? Maybe it means you need to surround yourselves with people who will point you the right direction. Maybe you need to get on the proactive side of things and just crowd sin out because sin breeds in boredom, i found. But you need to crowd sin out by, by filling your time and your mind with the right things. This is, this is part of the reason we just talk week after week about, hey, let's read this book daily, Brookside. This is part of why I'm such a huge fan of memorizing small chunks of Scripture. Not because there's anything magical in that, but because it fills my mind with truth instead of with whatever else is grabbing for my attention. Maybe this means you just get intentional about serving others in your neighborhood or at your work. Maybe it means you put yourselves around people who are going to help you grow and move the right direction instead of the wrong direction. I don't know what it is, but find all the practical ways you can to, to create a groove that points you towards God, that points you towards Jesus instead of towards sin and temptation. Others of you, you're here and you would say, Tim, for me, that, that temptation ship has sailed. You're not fighting temptation. You've given in to it. And you've been giving in to temptation for long enough that, that all of the attractive lure about it has faded away. And, and, and this thing that seemed so thrilling and great at first now controls you. And you know that there is nothing attractive about this sin that owns you. You're on the far end of this progression that James talks about. You know that your sin has brought death. Now, not physical death, but you know your, your sin has ended relationships. You know that your sin has killed opportunity. You know your sin it leaves this wake of damage in your life as you look about relationships, as you look at relationships and things like that. The, the good news that, that I love sharing every week is that if that's you, there is still hope. Of course there's hope. The, the good news of the gospel is that sin never has to have the final word. As far as you are into it, as deep as you are into it, as long as you've been doing it, sin never has to have the final word. That's the good news of the gospel. I've seen it transform lives. James is an example of that. And then I know people here at Brookside that are examples of that. Your sin never has to have the final word. Let me just point to two verses from two other biblical authors that reinforce this. So, so in 1 John 1, so now we move from, from James to the Apostle John. Listen to what John says. John says that if we confess our sins, He, God, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us, to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that we don't have to feel dirty. You don't have to feel trapped. You don't have to feel shamed by God. Forgiveness isn't about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. And it's available as we come to God through Jesus Christ. Or, or the Apostle Paul, 
Third guy that's weighing in on this, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, says that, that God made him, Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that way, we might become not, not defined by what we do, not defined by our sin, not trapped in circumstances. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so we could be the righteousness of God. Your temptation can take you to a place you never wanted to go. So my question at this point is, is, is what temptation are you facing right now that you need to see in this light? Don't bite the hook. What, what temptation do you feel overwhelmed by that you need to speak the truth of the gospel into? That God doesn't look at us based on what we do, but on what Christ has done. We need to run from sin and run to Jesus. And this brings us right into our third, our, our third point, our third perspective shaper. In both trials and temptations, focus on who God is and what he offers. So throughout this whole section in James, throughout all these trials and temptations James is talking about, he never loses focus on God and what God offers. So, so let me just track through this a little bit so you see this for yourselves. So right after he starts out talking about, about considering joy and trials in verses 2 through 4, James immediately jumps to talking about asking God for wisdom in the midst of those trials. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We all know how unsettling trials can be. I'm the sort of guy that I always like to think three or four domino falls ahead, right? I never like to be like right in the moment because I'm just one of those guys that likes to be prepared or advanced thinking or whatever. But, but trials, trials force you to say, I don't know how the dominoes are going to fall here. I don't know what to do and I don't know what to, what's going to happen. Trials bring us to the end of ourselves in ways that nothing else does. And so I'm so glad that when that happens, James knows that. And he says, when you're in the midst of those trials, that you have this persevering, maturing effect. But when you're in the middle of not knowing what to do, he says, ask God who gives wisdom so graciously and open-handedly. He drives us back to remembering God in the midst of our trial. Or just a few verses down, verse 12. James gives us the long view. He shows us why we persevere through trials. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Scholars who study the first century world say that this crown isn't some jewel-studded hunk of metal, right? Instead, this crown is most probably a, a, a leafy wreath, like a laurel wreath that you would put on an athlete's head after they victoriously made it through the competition they were in the middle of, right? So, so the picture here is, is that of running through the trials of life victoriously, persevering to receive this crown of, of eternal life, true life, the best kind of life that never ends. So James brings us back again to God and what he offers in the midst of trial and temptation. 
Or just a few verses further down when he's talking about temptation. Temptation that can seem so good and fulfilling, but it's not good or fulfilling. James directs our attention back to God. Verses 16 to 18. He directs our attention back to God, the one who is good and the one who who gives good gifts. Verse 16 says, Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of what he created. So the big thing to take away from everything I've been saying for the last few minutes is is how, how aware of God that James is even when life is tough. How aware of God that James is in the midst of trial and temptation. You see, in the middle of trials and temptation, James is telling you, don't forget God. He's not against you. He's good. He's gracious. He's stable. He's certain. He's our life. And all of that is just from James 1. I don't know what trial or temptation you're in the middle of right now. As much as we wish we could snap our fingers and wake up from the nightmare, or as much as we wish that we could snap our fingers and just make, make the temptation poof go away, we can't. Tough times and trial and temptation are, are a reality in a fallen, broken world that we live in. So I can't make those trials go away. We can't do that. I can't, I can't make your circumstances change. But, but what I can do is, is help keep your focus on God. What, what, I, what I can do is, is show you who God has revealed himself to be and, and remind you that this is the sort of God who exists. This isn't just some stuff that Tim thinks about God. This is who God is, who you can experience. He's good. He's accessible. He's available in times of trial. He's gracious. He's wise. And He's our life. And so so in the midst of whatever trial it is that you're facing, what, what truth about God do you need to set as an anchor So that way, while everything else is swirling around you and is uncertain around you, what truth about God do you need to just cling to in the midst of your trial and temptation? Don't forget who God is. He's good. He's available. He's our life. And and the Lord's Supper or, or communion takes all these things we've been talking about today and it adds even more life to them, even more color to it, because as we focus on God, as we focus on God in communion, we don't focus on God in the abstract or some generic way. We focus on, on who God revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ, who came to earth and died on the cross for our sins. And, and Jesus, on the cross, he experienced suffering in the deepest ways imaginable. He can relate to your suffering. On the cross, Jesus took away your sin so that even when we fail responding to temptation, Jesus has taken that. He's dealt with it. It's not because of what we do, but because of what He's done. 